welcome to episode 133 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. I'm Beth. 133. 133. Hey, boo-boo. And moving on up. Oh, we are doing the youtube thing again. It is awkward and uncomfortable (laughs) and all of the things. We got great feedback. We're still doing it. I'm still very pregnant, so that's fun. Uh, Mom, wearing yes. our one of our little sweatshirts we had an ad for a few months ago. It's so cute. Now I people know, can I like see it. it. That was so smart to wear it. Well, thank you. <laughs> you Once in your... a while, it happens. <laughs> Not just a hat rack, as Alex says. <laughs> it tells me that fairly often. Um, oh. <laughs> One thirty-three. We're we here. Know. I know. I like get really nervous as soon as it says Me too. Our recording. recording. Like, it's like, oh, oh. Mm, what do I say? What do I do? Oh no. Who am I? What is this? What's going on? We are covering stories this week from the state of California. Mom has the, the true crime. Wait, what are we doing? True crime. I have the paranormal and the beverage. Yeah. So I have to I have to tell you first what, what I did yesterday. Oh, I know. Are you telling our listeners what you did yeah, yesterday? In case they wanted to know. I'm sure they're dying I, to know. But can well, you, you show us? I got, I, a ta- I got a tattoo. I know. So Hold really it still. It. Hang upside down. Hang so upside that we down. Can see it. Mom I will can't hang upside down. <laughs> well, there, it's like. It's a, it's a Coca Pelle. And he put splotches of turquoise in it, too. So it is just the most It looks like a stone. It's beautiful. Mom's going to have to get a good picture and post and it post on our it. social, social My media. My tattoo that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> I know y'all want to see it. <laughs> well, so why do you love Cocapelli so much? He d- what I, is Cocapelli? Isn't it the god of fertility? It's the god of fertility and prosperity, which I've known... I. I've loved Cocapelli, I think, since you were a little girl. I think No, you grew, have. Grew You've up. had him in our garden on pots, like it's pots, me, not pot, pots. <laughs> <laughs> to me, he's he's the flute player from um like the southwest area, but he is just so happy. He he just makes me happy, you know, once in a while. No, I'm not, not hating on just, it. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you happy. So he does. And then I think I told you guys after all my operations are done from the breast cancer, I was going to get a tattoo and I was going to get Cocapelli. So then I thought, yeah, but what does Cocapelli have to do with any of that? And then lo and behold, I did some research and he's also represents new beginnings. So I was like, done deal. Don't have to think about this one. But who even cares what? it means to other people I do. or what I think, it does it should I think be... tattoos have to have a meaning I but think it did to you it did but now it super does super does <laughs> okay mom <laughs> do you know how many times I've had like a tattoo drawn up or a tattoo idea and I've gone in and like no I'm a big baby I, I'm a I, big baby I have to be honest it hurt <laughs> Yeah, I know it does. It hurt. I know um, it does. You know, some say they didn't feel it on their wrist at all. Of course, this isn't on my wrist. It's a little higher. But the tattoo artist and uh, syndicate tattoo, they he's the owner of the store. Mm-hmm. And he was fantastic. He was hilarious. And he just made me feel so comfortable. 
I mean, obviously he knew what he was doing. He knew I was scared uh, because I was like, oh, I don't know about this. I mean, I know I want to do it, but, yeah. you know, but he just put me at ease and he was so fantastic and just took his time and talked to me the whole time. So it kind of kept my mind off of what was going That's on. That's fantastic. Yeah. I I guess I never... I think that's the important thing about tattoos is, is if you know what you want and you've known what you've wanted for a long time and it's not just like on a whim because mm-hmm. I can see on a whim I'd regret it. And that's why like I'd have something drawn up and I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I'd end up walking out with a different piercing. Like I had my whole left ear <laughs> totally pierced up because I just I always whimped out, always whimped out. Oh, and then I, I had so a plan excited. for my kids for a tattoo with, that represented each one of my kids. But now I've had too many kids. So that tattoo is growing. So <laughs> I think I'm. That was meant, when you had two. Yeah, I am meant. My sister drew up a really beautiful tattoo for me. Did you hear that? Yeah. That's Blake. Oh. Blake, are you dreaming? This scared the crap out of me. Oh. I hope that was Blake. It, Mom. <laughs> That was so crazy. Yeah, we did just find out that Blake has diabetes. So those with dogs with diabetes, if you have any advice for me, I will take it. Yeah, we're just, he has a monitor on him. We're trying to figure out dosages and it's not been fun, but that was scary. (laughs) He's asleep like right next to the chair. Yeah. He's wearing a shirt so that his sister, which is another dog before you get confused <laughs> doesn't pull off his monitor because she would he would in a second but he's in a little shirt he, if he gets up and you start seeing him walk around he looks so cute in his shirt <laughs> so hey i'm i'm anxious to try this dream yes uh, we are doing a true crime and paranormal podcast <clears throat> i had the cocktail and i'm grabbing the wrong thing here okay so the cocktail this week is called the exorcist and what i mom made it she's drinking it because i still can't okay it was one and a half ounces of tequila blanco and then it's about an ounce 0.75 ounces so a quarter of an ounce okay of lime juice a quarter of an ounce three quarters of an ounce yeah (laughs) shoot three quarters of an ounce wow i sent you to school i know i did (laughs) simple syrup and then a splash of red wine so in a put a little bit more than a splash in in a shaker with ice you pour the tequila lime juice and simple syrup you shake until chilled and pour into a glass of choice all the pictures are showing a martini glass and then it says set spoon at a 45 degree angle and slowly pour wine over i didn't give you that advice i just put a splash of wine i splashed away (laughs) Okay. What does it taste like, Mom? Mm. I wouldn't say it's refreshing. Yeah. It's the t- flavors really go together. And I think it's because the lime, again, I think the lime ties it together. I kind of have to admit something. I think I put a little too much lime into <laughs> it. A little tart for you, Mom. So if you see me kind of squishing my face, but I will tell you too, I can't drink this whole thing because it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, it is. So I'll I'd be sipping on it. Okay. Well, you sip on that. I have my water jug here. Mom, <laughs> tell us a true crime story. Okay. I've been oh. wanting to share this one since I heard about it. And it was like, 
I don't know, last year. So okay. <laughs> it was a long time ago, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what really got me, you know, once I started researching it, what really got to me, I have to honestly say, is there is nothing about the victim. I mean, mm. who she was, what she liked, what she did. Did she have friends? Nothing. It was all about the crime, mm-hmm. the suspects. Mm-hmm. And then you'll see there's kind of a twist in the story. And everything was about that. Yeah. And I'm like, you guys have totally forgotten about this poor young girl. I, it, she just, you know, she was the background. She was mm-hmm. the thing that started it. And I tore the web apart looking. I really, really did. Because I was not going to do this and That's just center on the killer. Yeah. And I found Murder in Pleasanton, Atina Fails, and The Search for Justice by Joshua Sachon. And he actually grew up in Pleasanton. What is this, a book? Yes. He wrote okay. this book. He lived a few blocks away from Tina. Um, and so he knew the story. He was younger than her, but he knew about the story and kind of grew up with the story. I bought the book and he totally talks about who Tina was, her background, her, her family life. That's great. Um, he covers everything. And as far as I can see after my research, he is the only one that covers who Tina actually was. Good for him though. Like, and this that's... is really the first time that I've oh. been doing research in my, and I've had the true crime where I have found that there is nothing on the victim. Mm. Usually there's something. I you find know. it more and more. Yeah. It, it was just so sad to me. I was like, I'm not going to cover this if I can't find out about Tina. But I did, thanks to this book, Murder in Pleasanton. And I will be referring, if I have quotes or something, it'll be from this book. Okay. For the most part. All right. Tina Marie Penix was born in Washington on April 27, 1969. Quote, she was a beautiful little blonde girl, her father Ron said about her. Unfortunately, the marriage between Ron and Shirley, so Tina's mother and father, didn't Mm -hmm. last very long. Ron was a terrible alcoholic. And so Tina's mother, Shirley, moved back to California, where she was from. There she met Steve Fales. Shirley divorced Ron while well, it was finalized in 1971. And then Steve and Shirley were married in 73. And Steve adopted Tina. Thus, she took his last name, which was fine with her biological father because he knew at that point he was just, she was better off with them than, than anything he could provide for her. Mm. In 1975, Drew was born. He was six years younger than Tina, but from the time he came home from the hospital, they just had this incredible bond. I mean, Tina just mothered him and smothered him, and and she just loved on her baby brother. In 1976, the family moved into a house that sat in a cul-de-sac on Virginia Island's court in Pleasanton, California. The green belt that ran through the middle of the neighborhood was always filled with kids. So think about this cul-de-sac and then there's this green belt that runs. There were many little, many little neighborhoods. Okay. Okay. But they're all just really nice, quiet neighborhoods with cul-de-sac sort of. Uh, There was a green belt that ran through it that was full of kids. I mean, they would play kickball, they would play baseball, football. 
uh, or just sit and talk and gossip. So when you <laughs> I, say green belt, you mean like a greenway, like it's just grass, yes, okay. grass, mm-hmm. like a little park. Yeah. Most of the kids rode bikes, as did Tina and her friends. I mean, just everywhere. It was safe. Pleasanton was a really safe place. Hence Um, the name. I guess. (laughs) Since World War II, there had only been five deaths. Oh. I mean, it was a super, super safe place. And none of those were children. Okay. So if you can imagine, like, I don't know, the neighborhoods where all the kids knew each other and would hang out till the late night playing uh, with, you know, kick the can or whatever. And, (laughs) and all the parents knew each other and there'd be barbecues and parents would hang out and get drunk. And (laughs) wow. Okay. (laughs) And the kids would play. I mean, everybody knew everybody. Yeah. You know, so imagine that too. Steve and Shirley's marriage, unfortunately ended in 1982. Steve, this is crazy. Steve had been having an affair with Shirley's younger brother's wife. Oh, boy. You got that? That's not messy at all. Yeah. They got married, which made Tina and Drew's cousins now their brothers and sisters, stepbrothers and sisters, and their aunt now became their mother, their stepmother. That had to have made Christmas very interesting. (laughs) Or not. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine? Just like how confusing that would be. So now Shirley, who had a really hard time with all of this. I mean, can you imagine? She had a super hard time. I'm sure she did. So she's a single mother now. And she's doing everything to make ends meet. Now she is getting money Uh, child support from Steve, but it just totally was not enough. She worked at the 7-Eleven, which was kind of a neighborhood 7-Eleven. She cleaned houses. And then she also made their living room into a bedroom so she could rent out that space for people just to make ends meet. As I said, she didn't handle the divorce very well and started on her own drinking journey. Mm. Oh, she would be out you know, after she got off work, she'd hook up with girlfriends and go out to several different bars and she'd be out real late at night. So that kind of made Tina the babysitter of Drew, which only made their bond even stronger. Sure. Because that's who Drew would run to if he needed some somebody. Oh. He would run to his sister. Now, how about Tina? People that didn't really know her said that she was very sweet and shy. People that did know her said the complete opposite. Hmm. (laughs) Tina played soccer when she was just a little one, then played softball when she grew up. She was a brownie and she was a Girl Scout. Quote, Tina was hysterically funny. She was a big joker. She could make me laugh until I peed my pants. Unquote. Said Stacy Coleman, a friend of Tina since elementary school. Katie Kelly was another of Tina's friends and they would get into some mischief in the neighborhood because <laughs> they lived like sort of right next door to each other. They would play doorbell ditch. Yeah. Like a lot um, and make prank phone calls. <laughs> Tina would just randomly, cause you know, there's always the same area code. So she would just randomly make up numbers after the area code. Yeah. It had no idea who she was calling. Yeah, we they, did the know, same thing. 
hey, all the time. Is your refrigerator running? Hopefully, You better go she said pick it a little it. more clear than that. Oh, that's definitely a lot. <laughs> you know, for, 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 for fridge running. <laughs> the girls would just laugh. They laughed about everything. Katie's mother would actually kind of like, you guys are driving me crazy because they would just laugh all the time. <laughs> everything was funny to them. But then the bullying started from a, from a group of girls. First verbally, then physically, with And pushing, how old was she at this shoving, time? and rock throwing. This started in elementary school. Rock throwing? Yeah, that was their favorite Cool. thing. Oh, and it was this one group of girls, of course. Mm. This, unfortunately, was not the only abuse happening in Tina's life. So, as I said, Shirley, to make extra money, turned the family room into another bedroom. People came and went. One man stuck around. Keith Fitzwater, a drug user, and um, not a very nice guy, especially after he drank. Shirley often had bruises on her, but when asked she would if she was being abused by Keith, she would always deny it. Tina told her mother about a strange event. So she was sleeping. When she woke up, Keith was laying in her bed with her, with his hand on her thigh. And Oh, gosh. she told her mother about this. But Shirley said she was making it up and wouldn't believe her. Tina kind of had mixed emotions about Keith from what I could read. She didn't really want her mother to marry him. But then she also told friends on occasions that she was in love with him. So Tina was in love with him. Mm, well, that's also signs of abuse, So though, and... what I'm thinking, I don't think he ever went so far as to sexually abuse her. I think he just was toying with the idea, but just to wake up and have a guy laying next to you with his hand on your thigh, to me, that that's abuse in itself too, you know? So I think he kind of paid a lot of attention to her and that's why it made her kind of think she was falling in love with him. Tina was a freshman at Foothill High in the 1983-84 school year. Alcohol and drugs at this time were rampant on the school campus. I mean, kids would come. It said that the principal, On the high school campus? yes, Oh, yes, wow. the principal sent one to, one to three students home every week that were drunk. Oh my I mean, gosh. it was crazy. Tina tried to fit in, but there was no niche for her. She didn't drink. She didn't do drugs. She really wasn't into sports at this time, so she kind of left the baseball or the softball thing. She didn't participate in any school clubs, and she was real quiet and shy. So Kelly said at one time that, you know, they'd be goofing and having a good time, but as soon as Tina walked through the school doors, that part of her shut down, and she just became really shy and quiet. But... She did have a propensity for pranks. She did have a smart mouth. She would even kind of talk back to teachers in a kind of smart alecky way, but she definitely talked back to kids in a smart alecky way. So So she held her own. she held her own. She and friend Kelly were still into having fun, bike riding, doing somersaults and just pranking people. You know, they were still into that freshman year of high school. 
But the other girls now were into hair and makeup and boys. So that made Kelly and Tina kind of fair game for prey. You know, yeah, they, they were different. They were going to be picked on. I would never in a million years want to relive my high school years ever. Neither. <laughs> Either. Those that enjoyed high school, good for good you. Good for you. <laughs> oh, boy. Spring semester, the bullying got so bad that Tina stopped riding the bus. So these girls were all lived around the same area that she did. They were just horrible horrible to them they would throw rocks at them like i said that was their main thing that's so crazy um, to me and they would be at the bus stop tina and kelly would be at the bus stop and all of a sudden just get pounded with rocks it got so bad that tina stopped riding the bus her mother would take her to school and tina would walk home taking the shortcut under the 680 freeway the shortcut took off about four miles from the usual four oh, wow. six mile drive from the neighborhood to the high school. So Wait, it was only it's a like 4.6 mile drive. But if you go under the tunnel, it's like, point like a half a mile. Yeah. Yeah. It was less than a mile. If you walk <laughs> through the tunnel, okay. it was a definite shortcut. I don't even know how that would work. <laughs> well, if you're on the bus, you have to go through all these streets and everything else to get out of okay. the neighborhoods. And then you have to catch the, the, 680 freeway and then you'd have to get off and get to the school so it all added up to be about 4.6 miles gotcha but you cut all that off and went through this this shortcut a nine foot high tube ran under the freeway it was scary but it was big enough to walk through mm. so it's like a culvert that was underneath yeah. the freeway yeah. and that's what the kids would walk on and then they'd get on a trail and take the shortcut to their neighborhoods. Tina's father, Steve, was not happy about her walking home via the shortcut. He tried to talk Tina into going back and riding the bus, but Tina was actually more scared to ride the bus than she was to walk alone on the shortcut. That's terrible. But her refusing to take the bus also meant that Shirley had to drive her in the mornings. Now, if you remember, Shirley is a partier now. And goes out until the wee hours of the morning. And so sometimes it's hard for Shirley to get up when it's time for school. So Tina was often tardy mm -hmm. because of this ride to school. And because of her many tardy days, she got detention. Shoot. So that's important to remember. In her last assignment before her death, Tina was to write about her future goals. She wanted to go to the nearby two-year Cabot College and become an actress or a real estate broker. Oh. <laughs> That's a freshman, you know. Yeah. It was April 5th, 1984. At lunch that day, ugh, the girls bullied her once again and threw rocks at her and threatened to beat her up after school. Tina had detention that day, but skipped it probably to avoid the girls because there was like, two of the girls that were in the mean girl group that were also had detention for one reason or the other because they were mean girls <laughs> you know sometimes those mean girls don't even get called out you know <sighs> i hate bullying anyway school ended at 2 20 detention started at 2 30 tina was seen around three o'clock starting to head home so what she did yeah from 2 20 to 3 no one knows. 
no one saw her. I'm thinking this personal, but I'm thinking that she was hiding because they threatened to beat her up after school. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking she was hiding and waiting for the girls to either go home or go to detention before she left the campus. How long? But that's just. How me. long would have detention been, though? Uh, I think it was like 45 minutes to an hour. So they'd be just getting out, though, around the time she decided to leave. 45 minutes to. Well, if if it was an hour, they wouldn't because it started at 2.30. Yeah. So she'd have time. A truck driver on six on the 680 freeway spotted what looked like a body on a trail as he drove over the culvert. He wasn't comfortable with that, so he turned the big old truck around, drove back just to see if what he thought he saw he did see. So he got out of the truck and looked, and it was a body mm-hmm. just laying there. This is before cell phones. <laughs> he had to find a phone. So he drove to the nearest fairground, which had pay phones. Mm-hmm. And he used the pay phone to call the police, call 911. Now, at about the same time, there were two boys taking the shortcut home or just playing around that shortcut, and they stumbled upon the body. They ran to the nearest house and called 911 from the house. So the police got both of these phone calls within seconds of each other. Wow. Police rushed to the scene and found the body of 14-year-old Tina Fails. She lay on the ground surrounded by homework and notebooks. Her purse was found hanging in a nearby tree. The contents seemed not to have been disturbed. And I'm going to read the contents to you because to me, it just, it broke my heart. I don't know. Just because they were such ordinary items. She had a comb, a knee-net perfume, talic powder, two eyeliners, lipstick, mascara, blush, nail polish, pins, pencils, a student ID, and Tina's report card dating to April 3rd. Mm. It just, I don't know, uh, such ordinary items belonging to this beautiful 14-year-old girl. The purple sweatshirt and violet sweatpants Tina was wearing that day were soaked with blood. Mm. She had been stabbed, but police could not tell how many times. Jeez. The Oakland coroner performed the autopsy on April 6th. He counted no less than 44 stab wounds and concluded that the victim died from multiple stab wounds and her heart was pumping while she sustained the wounds. Some of her wounds were defensive in nature. The weapon was concluded to be a sharp single-edged knife, three-fourths to one inch wide and three and a half to four inches long. Murder weapon was never found. The murder was thought to have happened between 3 and 3.15. Who was the killer? There were so many suspects in this case, but police chief uh, Bill Eastman thought that Tina might have known her killer. Could that narrow down the search? So now I'm going to kind of shortly go through some of the suspects. Some of the suspects. There were more. (laughs) People thought maybe the truck driver who reported the body was the murderer. But police ruled him out right away. Police looked closely at Shirley's boyfriend, Keith Fitzwater. Although he did have a prison record, did drugs, and wasn't a real nice guy, there was no evidence pointing to him at all of being the killer. Then there was Walter Nyman, who had attacked a 16-year-old girl that was walking home from school in a nearby town. She was able to get away from him and called 911. 
Fingerprints led to Nyman and he was arrested and booked. His attack closely resembled the attack on Tina. Um, but again, there was nothing to tie him. Robert Rhodes was also suspected. He killed an 18-year-old woman from San Lendro, which is 20 miles from Pleasanton, 15 days after Tina's death. Again, nothing to tie him to her death. Michael Ide came under close scrutiny. He killed yet another 18-year-old woman from San Lendro later in 1984. Nothing. James DeVeggio was looked at. He killed a 22-year-old woman from Pleasanton in 1997. All of these men were closely scrutinized, but there was nothing that linked them to Tina's murder. Mm, yeah. I remember and the chief thought... I was going to say, and if she knew this person, then no. And he thought that she knew them. There were several boys from the high school that were interviewed as well. Nothing really panned out, but one of the students really stuck out. His name was Steve Carlson. Steve seemed a little out of it, and his stories changed each of the three times he was interviewed. Steve told police that he was bullied at school all the time, and on the day Tina was killed, a group of football players picked on him. Now, this really did happen. According to Steve, Jeff Michelson was the ringleader who on that day put Steve in a school dumpster and locked it. Golly. Then push the school has more than just an alcohol and <laughs> drug problem. It has a definite bullying, bullying problem. Jeez. Then he pushed the dumpster over. <sighs> so on its side, Steve said that he could hear laughing and cheering from students that were standing around and watching this. That is sick. That's so sad. The dumpster was unlocked by a teacher and Steve crawled out covered in trash and food. He ran home, took a shower, then went for a drive in his mom's car. Now keep this in mind, both of his parents were in Reno at the time. So he was alone. Well, he had brother and sister, so they were with him, but no parents. He drove around in his mother's car. And as he was driving around, he said with his friend, Todd Smith, he said he saw Jeff Michelson climbing up from the culvert around 3.05 or 3.10. Mm. So the bully that put him in the trash can, he saw him coming out of the culvert. He seemed to have something on his clothes, but Steve wasn't really sure what it was. At first, Todd upheld this version of the story, saying that he was with Steve because he said there was no way that Steve could have done this. His story did change down the road. In fact, he was a witness for the prosecution at the trial. And it gives you a little hint what's going to happen. Jeff Michelson was looked at. He did have a hunting knife that he always wore in a sheath on his belt. Now, can you even imagine this at school? Sure, 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 sure. sure. Yeah, as like, he does a line of cocaine. Like, it was like, well, he was a football school player. school has so, so many I don't know issues. if he did drugs because he was a football player. I'm sure he Do you drank, think that but... mattered, Mom? Do you yeah. think that mattered? He had this He's putting kids in dumpsters and oh my gosh. Lab results turned out that there Times was no were different. <laughs> yeah. There was no human blood on the knife. Oh, I guess in fact when they searched his house they found two hunting knives, but again, no human blood on them. Where's the oh. motive though? Like cuz there is no motive school, in this like... story. Let me just tell you there is no motive in this story. 
According to Jeff and several witnesses, he was riding around with friends and was nowhere near to the culvert or the trail. No. Michelson was cleared. Police kept an eye on Carlson. By now, they had heard stories about him. He often came to school drunk, and he did drugs. And this is the kid that was locked in the dumpster? Picked on. On April 5th, he had actually thrown a party before school started. Sure. A few people showed up. Got to get that power hour in before class. (laughs) They showed up, then left the house trash. So I guess his father had like a liquor cabinet. And somehow they knocked That was left open? They knocked the whole thing over. So there was liquor bottles smashed, the the glass and the cat. It was a total disaster. And then I think they took, they went up to the bedroom and found his mother's underwear and threw that all over the house. All while drinking, of course. At probably like 6 (laughs) a.m. Steve had called in sick, but went to school shortly before lunch. Totally wasted. He started a fight with the football players and thus was thrown into the dumpster. Yes, Steve was picked on. And yes, he was bullied, but mainly because of his smart mouth and aggressive behavior. He really started a lot of trouble. Mm. I think he just thrived on fighting and the aggressiveness. There's no excuse for bullying, but there's also no excuse for being mean to people. Don't be mean to people. Be nice. Still, the police had no evidence. They, of course, kept Tina's bloody clothes and the purse that was found in the tree. But DNA analysis was a few years in the future. So why did they, the killer throw the tree, you know, the, the purse in the tree? It was suspected that he threw it up there. So he kind of marked the spot where her body was. So maybe he could sneak down there and see if he left anything or whatever or steve's house was right up from the culvert and so if he sat on his roof which he did he could watch the whole thing unfold so did he throw the purse up there so he could pinpoint exactly where the body was so he could watch what was going on these are questions that are unanswered but yeah i mean or it could just be something as mundane as Somebody was taunting her and took it from her and just threw it up to like in the middle of taunting her. Like, I don't know if there necessarily even had to be some rhyme or reason to it. It could have been like. Well, they could have thrown it in the field. It was a wild field that was around there. I mean, grass. Right. But that's that my was... point is it was just a throw. It wasn't like a purposeful. I want it to hang on that limb kind of a throw. It would have been hard to do to just toss it up there because the tree was kind of on a hill. Mm-hmm. So you really had to want to toss it into that tree. I mean, you had to kind of aim it at the tree. By 2008, police had 20,000 pages of notes on this crime. Wow. And still nobody. Surely Tina's mother had spiraled downhill. Her daughter's murder affected her emotionally and mentally. Some sources say that she was admitted to a mental institution for a short period of time. I don't know if that's true or not. Others don't even mention this, but her depression was all consuming. And son Drew, who was eight at the time of his sister's murder, was having a hard time of his own. He was scared of everything, thinking that the killer was now after him. 
he couldn't sleep by himself. He had to sleep with his mother. Um, he would call the police like all the time. He had that number memorized. And if they had speed dial, he had on speed dial. He would, call, he would call them. No, he called directly to the police. Station. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was, was like, like... I thought the same thing, but he had the number to the police station and he would okay. call that directly frequently because of his mother's mental illness. He was alone. He had no one to talk to. He was very alone. And that was his childhood. The case went cold until 2011 when it was re reopened by a new detective. She pondered the purse, that purse. Tina's clothes had been sent to the FBI lab many times, but the purse had never been analyzed. Now they did look for fingerprints, um, but it was such a material that fingerprints, they couldn't pick fingerprints out okay. of it. Lo and behold, after sending it to the FBI, there was a small spot of blood found on the purse. DNA analysis matched it to Steve Carlson. Hmm. A Steve Carlson that was definitely not the blonde, handsome, blue-eyed 16-year-old police had interviewed in 1984. He was big and bulky, was covered in tats. He still had piercing blue eyes, but they had turned mean. I mean, this guy looks scary. He had turned into a drug-using, heavy-drinking, scary guy, and he was locked up at the time at the Santa Cruz County Jail on drug charges. In the 27 years since the murder, Steve had been locked up several times for drug charges and once for sexual assault on a young girl. By July 26, 2011, detectives interviewed Steve in jail. As soon, I mean, and there's video of this, as soon as the 1984 murder of Tina was brought up and Steve was asked if he remembered it, Steve didn't answer. Instead, he pulled up a trash can and threw up into the trash can. Two weeks after the interview, Steve was released from jail. <laughs> I'm sorry. This was like perfect timing. As he was walking out, police were there to arrest him. So he Got had a taste of freedom, but. You're going right back in. It was just a smell of freedom. <laughs> he was arrested for the death of Tina. On October 2014, Steve Carlson was found guilty and convicted of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 26 years to life. Then, in 2017, an appeals court reduced his conviction to second-degree murder, saying that the prosecution had not proven premeditation. His sentence was reduced to 16 years to life. Steve maintained his innocence throughout all of this. Atina's mother, Shirley, was not around for this terrible turn of events. In fact, the morning of the trial in 2014, that morning, she had a massive heart attack and oh, died. Wow. Some say of a broken heart as she never got over Tina's death. In 2020, six years after his conviction and 30 some 30 somewhat years do the math mom <laughs> i should have done it before this steve carlson admitted to killing tina <laughs> he wrote letters to the parole board to tina's family and to tina herself his letter to tina reads quote i was living in denial for many years not being able to believe or take responsibility for brutally murdering you on that day of april 5th 1984 
I want you and your family to know you did absolutely nothing to deserve what I did. That's what makes this murder so callous and horrific. End of quote. What he admitted to is that he acted out of rage. Because of his dumpster experience that day and being humiliated, and the fact that his house was trashed by the people that came over to the party that morning, and he knew he was going to get a whipping by his dad. His dad did beat him as he was growing up. He was filled with all this rage, so what did he do? Well, he went into the kitchen, he grabbed a kitchen knife, and he set out to cause some damage to someone. God, The desire was to hurt or kill something or someone, and Tina was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, okay, how is that makes it so much worse? How is this not premeditation? I mean, you're not just grabbing something, a stick or something that's sitting there, right? You are grabbing a knife from your house, a very sharp knife, not a butter knife, a sharp knife, and you're going out with the intention of killing someone. How is that not premeditation? Maybe they were arguing premeditation on killing specifically her. Yeah. But still. You're no, I agree with you. I agree with you. Of killing somebody. I'm just saying what they that probably argued. Ugh, that made me so mad. Carlson's next parole hearing will be in 2024, next year. Now, here's a little insight into confessing to a crime while in jail. An inmate's chance of parole are increased. Mm-hmm. They have to tell the truth, show they understand what they did and why, and use prison programs to better themselves. It's like rehab steps. It's like so admitting is Carlson the faking it. District Attorney Stacy Pettigrew, who prosecuted the case, says she's skeptical. Quote, the confession needs to be weighed against its absence for so many years. End of quote. Think about that. Him not confessing killed Shirley because she had a mental illness. Think of Drew's life growing up. He grew up alone and scared of everything because he didn't know who the murderer was yeah, and where he was. I mean, the family suffered so much. Maybe an earlier confession would have alleviated at least some of that pain. This confession to me and to the prosecutor just seemed a little too late. I'm going to end with a poem that was written by Shirley a year after Tina's death. I had a dream. It was a beautiful dream. It was a fantasy come true. Tina came home. We were all home again. We laughed and cried, and soon the teasing that I missed began. But then Tina had to leave. Someday, I'm sorry, this just someday we'll all be together again. I miss the family I had, and I wish at the time I knew how lucky I was. But the dream ended a long time ago. And her last words to me were, bye, mom. Yay. (laughs) Well, that's not horrible or anything. Golly. I just kind of. How does somebody get filled with so much rage to do that? He was a doper. He started doing drugs when he was really young, like 12. And then moving on (laughs) to harder and harder drugs. He, you know, had kind of an abusive family lifestyle, but still there's many people that have that and just don't go out and randomly kill a young 14 year old stabbing her. May I add 44 times? I know. 
that's rage. That's that's complete all-consuming rage. We can use that as an excuse as to things, but then you can't because there's so many people who have also come out of those and, come out of those dark places right. without uh, killing anyone. I don't know. It's just it's terribly sad. It those yeah. wrong place, wrong like right place, right time, wrong place, wrong whatever you want to say. I hate that. Like that's, that's, that makes it so much worse because it's so random. And that poor girl was just trying to get home from school without getting beat up by the mean girls. I hope those, no, I'm not going to say it. That's mean. Well, you can, because it's on the Facebook, it's on the Facebook page um, of, of Tina's Facebook page that her cousin actually made for her. And there are comments about, I hope these, girls that bullied i hope that they reflected on what they did not just the girl bullies but all of the bullies reflected reflected on the chain of events that happened your actions of the bullying right your actions cause reactions like you don't know it just because that person's different they're different for a reason we're all different but like right you don't know what they're going home to. You don't know what they've come to school from. It just, you know, had she not been bullied, she would have been riding the bus. She wouldn't have gotten detention. She would have rode the bus back home. End of that story. Had they not put Steve in the dumpster, he wouldn't have been filled with this rage and humiliation that he felt. I mean, he yeah, was a but sick, we can't. We also a- can't blame other people for these choices either, because then you could even start blaming the mom. If she could just not go out and get drunk, then she could have taken her daughter to school on time and she wouldn't have had detention. Did you know, see, this is this you- is a vicious circle, though, that you cannot. <laughs> Excuse me that you cannot start, we we can't start throwing people into because then you could even back up even further. If his dad wouldn't have had an affair and surely wouldn't have started drinking, then their daughter could have gone to school on time. It's just a... But reflecting on the chain of events. Reflecting on the negative Everything things, just yeah. led to this, this what happened. Yeah. I mean, it's just no, crazy looking back at it and looking at everything that happened and then all of a sudden this poor innocent girl is walking on a trail and collided with this right but we can't blame other people i hope that the bullies reflected reflect yes i don't want them to have guilt or survivors or they can't blame themselves because you can't go back in time right you can't can't do that but let it hit home though let it hit home and reflect on this and hopefully teach your own kids that is just wrong it's just bad so anyway that's the story and then the mother's poem just made me kind of think did I always appreciate the family that I had you know no we never we don't always no you know the 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 loudness and the craziness we take it we definitely take it for for granted granted. Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it's gone it's gone. Anyway, I guess that's the my message to listeners is embrace your family and be nice er- to people. <laughs> cherish cherish them. Um, you know, this week <laughs> if you can't do it any further. And and yeah, as much as anyone can do, stop the bullying. Uh, just nip it, nip it in the bud, as Barney Fife likes to say. <laughs> All right.
Uh, I know it's 12, but, you know, I'm having a drink. Go ahead. I mean, you made the drink. What are you, were, were you going to waste the drink? I put way too much lime in here. <laughs> well, good thing you didn't follow my original instructions of doing a fourth because that would have been less. <laughs> I don't know how you ended up with more. <laughs> I give great directions. Great. A fourth instead of three fourths. Yeah. All right. I wanted to do something different for the, what is this? Paranormal. <laughs> Pregnancy brain is a real thing, Good, by the way. Because <laughs> I want you to get my mind off of this story. Yes. That's what I'm going. Believe me, that's what's going to happen. So my paranormal story does not necessarily take place in California. I don't even what? know if much of this does. Some of it might. Okay. So when I, when you think of California, what do you think of? wine you would (laughs) that was a stupid question that was a stupid question i should have known that was going to be your answer uh i think of like hollywood and movies (laughs) oh yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) okay so i wanted to see if there was any haunted movie sets or haunted movie things and i found a bunch so i'm going to I think I cover like four or five different movies that either cool. had like a curse attached to them or the set was haunted. It doesn't necessarily have to do with California, but it but it does. Does doesn't, but it does. Okay, cool. I'm excited. Okay, cool. Uh and some of these movies I know, mom, you have not seen. Probably most of them, knowing oh, you. Geez. I was trying to pick movies that you'd seen, but I was but these are like really haunted. So I couldn't like skip them because you hadn't seen them so just pretend to know what i'm talking about (laughs) pretend you saw them (laughs) pretend for the listeners okay so the first one i'm going to talk about is annabelle Uh, this came out in 2014 and it's the prequel to the conjuring movie so that's the ragdoll yeah uh and it's based on a true story i've seen it it's loosely based on a true story like there's Mm. some snippets of the real story in there but it's not like very factual uh so the description given on imbd is john form has found the perfect gift for his expectant wife maya a beautiful rare vintage doll in a pure white wedding dress but maya's delight with annabelle doesn't last long On one horrific night, their home is invaded by members of a satanic cult who violently attack the couple. Spilled blood and terror are not all that they leave behind. The cultists have conjured an entity so malevolent. Oh, I said it. I was worried I wouldn't be able to. I even have like how to say it next to it. That nothing they did will compare to the sinister conduit to the damned that is now Annabelle. Ooh. (laughs) Uh, it's directed by John R. Leonetti, and he said that he experienced odd feelings on the set and said that he experienced supernatural occurrences. He found three lines drawn through a dusty window, which looked like finger marks. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. You're on a three. movie set. There's probably a lot three. of people around, but yep, that three. <laughs> uh, another thing I read about what, uh, let's see, Beth's notes don't make sense. 
Okay, when they were shooting their first scene with the demon. Now, this is a quote from one of the producers. This is pretty scary. Uh, The producer was Peter Safran, and he said, quote, We shot in this amazing old apartment building near Koreatown, and we had some funky stuff go down. In particular, the first day that the demon was shooting in full makeup, we brought the demon up in the elevator. He walks out and walks around to the green room to where we're holding the talent. And just as he walks under a giant glass light fixture, uh, he's being followed by the actor playing the handyman of the building. And all of a sudden, the entire glass light fixture falls down on his head, the janitor's head. Oh, not the demon, the janitor. And in the script, the demon kills the janitor in the hallway. So the oh. two of them are walking back. The guy died? The hallway. No, he didn't die, <laughs> but he still like got severely injured, injured yeah. by this light fixture. So it was just kind That's of weird because, weird. yeah, those two are going to be in the next scene they are about to shoot. Mm-hmm. So there are three Annabelle movies. There's Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, and Annabelle Comes Home. That was Annabelle. Now, Annabelle Comes Home came out in 2019. And maybe this is the movie I saw. Maybe I didn't see Annabelle because I don't remember a demon and a janitor. And that's, I don't know. I, I don't know. Not that anybody cares. Okay. So this description on IMVD was determined to keep Annabelle from wrecking more havoc. Demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren bring the possessed doll to the locked artifacts room in their home, placing her safely behind sacred glass and enlisting a priest's holy blessing. But an own unholy night of horror awaits as Annabelle awakens the evil spirits in the room who all set their sights on a new target, the Warren's 10-year-old daughter, Judy, and her friends. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we, we knew because we, we had talked about, we've talked about Annabelle uh-huh. before. So we knew so the this... Warrens had her, but that's probably the only true part of that story. No, actually, so this is really based on a, the true story. The writer of this was watching an interview, and he said that it really interested him that Ed Warren mm-hmm. partic- like really wanted to bring Annabelle home with him and put it, her in his artifact room, whatever. Remember their garage? We talked mm-hmm. about it in episode 56. Um, he wanted to see if she would interact with the other things that were in his room. Oh, he did this on purpose to see if... Ed Warren brought her home, yes, to keep her safe, and he did do the sacred glass and everything, but he was really curious if she was going to interact with other things in the artifact room. So then that fact interested the screenwriter to create a movie. I mean, how not? Like, that's... Yeah, yeah. You could go anywhere with that. Like, that's pretty cool. Okay, so a replica set of the Warren's artifact room was created. They didn't film in the Warren's Occult Museum, of course. That would be really scary. But items did start to kind of like move around the room and they couldn't explain it. Like there's a piano bench that kept moving. And this is a movie, so you know where things are because Mm -hmm. when you start shooting, you need things to be exactly where they were before your next scene so that it looks the same. Right. And things would move around while they were filming, especially this piano bench. They were constantly having to put this piano bench back. Oh my gosh. And... There were, uh, so the Annabelle doll doesn't look anything like the real Annabelle doll. So the real Annabelle is a rag doll. Mm-hmm. And this Annabelle is like this porcelain. She looks scary. And she's in like this long wedding dress. And the real Annabelle does not look 
scary. No, she's a rag doll. <laughs> she's cute. <laughs> yeah. This one looks scary. Okay. So McKenna Grace, she plays Judy, the 10 year old daughter. I don't think I can pinpoint somebody or a movie you would know her in, but she played, she was in Handmaid's Tale. That's how I know her. Mm-hmm. She's also a voice in Scoob and the Mickey Mouse Adventures. So you maybe you might know that one. <laughs> uh, but in an interview with The Rap, uh, quote, when all of us were on set for the first time, the lights went out and we're all freaking out and asking, Annabelle, are you there? Then the lights turned back on and my nose was bleeding so heavily. It happened sometimes because of allergies, but not this heavy. As soon as I left set to get a tissue, it stopped. Oh, weird. Yeah, that's creepy. Mm-hmm. I guess she woke up too one morning with like a triangle cut in her forehead. And that could have been from anything. But the director, was it the director or? Yeah, the director told her that it means that she was going to be abducted by aliens. Dude, she she's, she's young, too. Like, keep in mind, she's now young. we've got aliens in there. How scary, though, that you're like a kid filming this. Things are moving around the set. Your nose started bleeding and everybody's blaming the Annabelle doll. And now your director is telling you that. You're going to get abducted because you have a about triangle to... on your head. <laughs> Whatever. Jeez. Okay. Uh there was a scene at the end of the movie. Um, no, no, not the end of the movie. At the end of the scene, the girls would run up the stairs past the Warren's bedroom. And every time they did this, this was in an interview, the Annabelle doll was in that room and she was in a different spot. Every time that they did this scene and they ran up the stairs, the Annabelle doll was in a different spot in the Warren's bedroom. And there wasn't enough time between takes for somebody to go in there and move her. And it wasn't like tipped over or something. It was she was on a rocking chair or she was on the bed. So this is the fake. The yeah. And, but wasn't she under glass? I guess. Or in the movie she wasn't. Well, she was, the, the scene was not in the Warren's bedroom. The scene is just of them running up the stairs. Like they do a scene in the occult museum. Or the artifacts room, and then they run up the stairs. And right. every time they did that, and they ran past what was the set of the Warren's bedroom mm-hmm. where the Annabelle doll was just sitting, she was moving or had moved. Oh, that's weird. I started slow. We're getting into like the really spooky ones. The Conjuring. Uh, haven't seen that either. Again, it's another one that's been Hollywooded up. It's not as factual as I wish it was. The house even looks nothing like the real house. Oh. But, okay, so in 1971, Carolyn and Roger Perrin moved their family into a dilapidated Rhode Island farmhouse. And soon strange things start happening around it with escalating nightmarish terror. In desperation, Carolyn contacts the noted paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren, to examine the house. What the Warrens discover is a whole area steeped in a satanic haunting that is now targeting the Perrin family wherever they go. To stop the evil, the Warrens will have to call upon all of their skills and spiritual strength to defeat the spectral menace at its source that threatens to destroy everyone involved. (laughs) Okay. So odd things started happening with this movie before they even started filming. Screenwriters, when they were starting the research for this, would call Lorraine Warren to get facts. So, I mean, there are facts in there, but it's also right, Hollywooded yeah. up. But they would call Lorraine Warren and 
ask her different things and timeline and all this kind of stuff. But every time they called her, they would lose the call or it would be really staticky. They could never really, it was always really hard to continue a conversation with her because things would get really crazy on the phone. Wow. Weird. I know. Lorraine said, quote, we're about to expose the dark side of the dark side and it doesn't want the good to win. I'm surprised there's not more interference, unquote. Wow, because she and Ed actually did go to the conjuring house. Yes. They actually did do all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I remember you talking about that earlier in an- another episode. Yes. Uh, James Wan, the director, late one night working on the movie, uh, he'd gotten a new puppy and the puppy was sleeping and he was working on the movie and then the puppy woke up and just started barking Barking, barking, barking would not That's stop barking. That's always a really bad sign. And it's tracking something around the room as it was barking that <laughs> James Wan could not see. He knew that the story was really going to affect him as he was getting the movie ready. This is all stuff before they even started filming. Oh, my gosh. Okay, that would freak me out if Obi just started barking and following something around on the ceiling. Oh, that would terrify me. Movie or no movie, no matter what I'm doing, if I'm no, watching if The I Bachelor was... at night. And yeah. my dog started doing that. <laughs> that would freak me the heck out. You know, Finn started doing that recently, though, where he like will look up and like start smiling and I and I'm like, what are you? Aiden did that. I know. Jeez. I don't know what it is. Alex thinks it's like the reflection of like my phone or something when we're in a room. But the hi. <laughs> Well, little Finn, he says hi to everybody. So everything. Yes, he does. does. Before he closes every single door, he says bye. So this is just so scary. Okay. So Vera Farming, I can't pronounce her last name. I've never been able to. Farmiga, Farmiga. She plays Lorraine Warren in all of these movies. Conjuring, Annabelle. She plays Lorraine Warren. And... She said that she always felt uneasy on the set of The Conjuring and would actually, she would never rehearse this movie at night or by herself, ever. Wow. She's been on all of these movies, but this one in particular, that's what she said. During filming, she would always wake up also around 3 a.m., which is the witching hour, and she would feel like someone was watching her. Mm -hmm. The number three was pretty apparent to her during filming. Uh, one day she opened her laptop and discovered three scratches on the screen, like claw marks on her laptop no screen. No way. I'd like to see she, a picture of that. She knew that they had not been there. And one morning she woke up to find three long scratch marks on her leg. Oh. Yeah. Another actress on the movie. Now, this is so scary to me. Her name is Joey King. Uh, she played one of the parents' daughters, so she was 12 when they filmed this. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, so this I watched an interview with her on the Howard Stern show, Yeah, and she was like, that movie messed me up for my entire life, is what she said. Okay, so they're at the part, so this is real, but the mom starts to get possessed, and they're filming those parts. And when the mom starts to get possessed, she gets bruises on her arms and her legs. And that's kind of the scenes that they had been, almost said recording, doing. You know what I'm saying? So Joey King, though, she was waking up with real bruises all over her. 
they were in such odd places, like on her chest and on her stomach, that the makeup girls thought she was just pulling a prank and that she was trying to be silly and using their bruises and their uh, makeup. But she didn't so, feel she didn't she didn't feel it happening. She no, just she'd woke up and wake all up of a sudden with, they'd be there. Yeah, and so the makeup girls would even try to like rub it off of her because they thought she was just pulling a prank and it wouldn't come off, obviously, because it's a real bruise. It was almost like it was mirror 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 mimicking let's just use that word what was happening in the filming what's going on with the mom Uh and she was getting covered in bruises and it's getting so bad that they're like you need to go see a doctor like you are really covered in bruises and the doctors i guess she's 12 freaked her out and they're like this could be an early sign of child leukemia like you were like it was getting to the point where you touch her and she'd bruise so they run all these tests and they find out that she has a rare blood thinning condition called ITP and it's where your red platelets literally just like drain from your body mysteriously like it just happens and no one in the family has ever had this she's never had any issues with this it doesn't just just literally during the yeah so she had to go to the hospital two times a day during filming because she didn't want to stop filming two times a day to go test her platelets and do blood transfusions if she needed it after filming she goes home and her platelets are fine there's no trace of the issue at all she's never had any issues since and she's like in her 20s now like this yeah never has had a single issue so with her platelets the ever just left done yeah wow that crazy no that is you can't even wow yeah okay so on yeah, Howard Stern messed you up, totally mess you up for the rest. Yeah, of Yeah, that's so on Howard Stern. She's like, no, that movie is so messed up. There was so much that happened on that movie. You yeah. wonder why? Because they weren't in the actual house. They were on mm. a set, right? Because you I said the house so. didn't look anything like the real house. No, it didn't at all. So, so they, they were, were on a set. Yeah, but they're still playing with this. Yeah, I know. I know. Story or this demon and they're naming her what is that name i'm drawing a blank gosh darn it i hate pregnancy brain i hate it remember the witches yeah it was something with a b yeah you're right it was a b uh anyway it'll come to me i'm sure but you know you're still messing with that and calling it out and they use any ouija boards reenacting and i don't know but just I don't know. You're still messing with it, you know? I know. Oh, another weird thing that happened on set occurred when the Perrin family, so the real life family that The Conjuring is based Mm on, they came to set. And, okay, it says originally they were too afraid to visit. So I'm wondering if some of it was filmed on the property. Maybe. Um, But they came to visit. And crew members say a sudden strong wind started whirling around the family when they arrived, yet somehow trees across from the family and weren't trees moving. in the... No, weren't moving. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Next movie is The Omen. I've seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I figured. I had hoped. I had hoped you had. <laughs> Robert and Catherine Thorne seem to have it all. They're happily married, and he is the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, but they want nothing more than to have children. 
When Catherine has a stillborn child, Robert is approached by a priest at the hospital who suggests that they take a healthy newborn whose mother had just died in childbirth. Without telling his wife, he agrees. After relocating to London, strange events and the ominous warnings of a priest lead him to believe the child he took from that Italian hospital is the evil incarnate. The, uh, the movie was released in 1976 and it starred Gregory Peck and Lee Remick. Executive Bob Munger warned producers that making the movie was a bad idea. Really? Quote, quote, if the devil's greatest single weapon is to be invisible and you're going to do something which is going to take away his invisibility to millions of people, he's not going to want that to happen. Unquote. What an interesting perspective i totally thought so and i think that too of all of these movies if you think Instances, about it yeah the conjuring for example this one for example annabelle but, where they actually made him a demon walking down the hallway and those are based on real stories yeah what? that's really fascinating gregory peck went through he went through it during the filming of this movie. Right before filming, his eldest son committed suicide. Oh, dear. And then shortly after filming began, uh, so he booked a flight out. So they're filming and he's booking a flight somewhere. And last minute, he decided he didn't want to take that flight. I don't know why. Um, and that plane crashed. He was really happy that he didn't get on that plane. So then he books another flight and that flight gets struck by lightning. What? He survived, but his flight got struck by lightning. Now, that's like incredibly rare that a <laughs> plane gets struck by lightning. So it gets even crazier. Another person, I believe it was an executive, Mark Newfeld, his plane while they were filming also got struck by lightning. Different plane, different time, but they're still filming. Oh, his plane weird. also got struck by lightning. Isn't that it's weird? Like, what? I know, because just... that is not a common... I didn't, like, look up the numbers. Sorry, but... Okay. One scene was filmed in a zoo, which focuses on the reactions of baboons, I guess. I saw the movie a long time ago. There was an animal trainer that was brought on set because these baboons, they would not calm down. They're, the trainer had worked with these baboons to train them, obviously, to, like, react to whatever and... They would never calm down. They would not stop. They just kept going crazy. And the next day he was brought, he came in. One morning he came in and the animal trainer was mauled to death by a tiger. I wasn't expecting that. Oh my gosh. Sorry. There was also issues with Rottweilers on set. They apparently were going crazy as well. And they I bit, remember that. Yeah. They bit a lot of people on the set and they even bit through some protective gear of the trainer's. Holy smokes. They say animals know these things, so maybe they were sensing something. The special effects technician, John Richardson, and his assistant, Liz Moore, they were on a, They were in the Netherlands uh, during the release of this film. So mm-hmm. they were in the Netherlands, I guess, showcasing the film or something, but they were there. They got into this horrible car accident. He survived. She was actually beheaded. And... It was just this horrible accident. Well, then everybody started freaking out because they were exactly 66.6 kilometers away from a little town named Omen. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That 
is absolutely crazy. I know. And I know a lot of people could be like, well, this is just all happenstance. Like this is just. Yeah, but really? I know. Every bit of it. I mean, one or two things. Yeah, you can look at it like that. But all those things. Okay. Amityville Horror. There's been a couple movies. 1974. Okay. Yeah. So it happened in 1974. But then this film, the first one, came out in 1979. Doesn't that seem a little early for you? Five years after the case happened? To do oh, a movie on it? No. People are jumping on things right now. Boom, boom. I just feel like that seems so... It's, it was such a horrific event. But remember, during the 70s, people were real into Ouija boards and that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, but had he even been tried? Like, had he just been tried? Like, it's... I don't know. It just hasn't had all that stuff come out yet. I yeah, don't I don't know about the trial. <sighs> So James Brolin, the actor who played George Lutz, the dad, the well, not the dad, the family that moved in after the murders. Yes. yes. Um, he's the guy who publicized everything about the house. So James Brolin played George Lutz, and he hadn't taken the part yet, though. So he's reading the Amityville book. So, I mean, they even had a book before before the movie. That seems even sooner. They had to write it and they had to write it and publish it. That takes time. It must have been like, oh, it happened. Let's write a book. I don't know. That just seems so wrong to me. Okay. So he's reading this book and he gets to a really intense part of the story and the clothes that he had hung for the for the next day fell to the floor and he felt a very eerie feeling like he wasn't alone in the room. So he decided he wanted to do the movie. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the way most people's brains work. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Uh, in 2005, Ryan Reynolds, he played George Lutz in the newer version of the movie. He said that during filming, he would wake up every morning at 3.15, which was the time that the killing supposedly happened and the time in the movie that George Lutz would wake up at. During the filming, he would wake up every morning at 3.15. And he doesn't know. And he even said in the interview, he's like, I don't know if that's just me subconsciously doing that right because right. i know or if it has something that i can't explain he's like i just thought that that was really weird okay well that's it for amityville i thought there was more i'm sitting here scrolling and it was just for some reason it repeated everything i wrote twice so oh, that's it okay. for amityville moving on <laughs> <laughs> the exorcist which is what your cocktail is that you are uh, slowly sipping so on these over last there. ones just for your information the last three i have watched oh the last three really yeah okay the all Exorcist. the original ones yeah <laughs> 1973 it was the first of its kind is loosely based on a true story yeah. and it caused people to faint in the theater they were so scared when a teenage girl is possessed by a mysterious entity, her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her daughter. There's a lot of darkness on set. Everybody reports that they're just, it never felt right on set. And this one I believe, because even if it's not something, you're really dealing with a darkness. The Exorcist is one of the dang scariest movies that I have ever seen. Forget all these <laughs> 
demons walking in the hallway and stuff. When you're talking about a possession you're really, of a you really clung on that demon girl. and janitor in a hallway, are demon, you? the demon, especially <laughs> when you're talking about a little girl being possessed by, and then the makeup was horrific. I mean, like good horrific. Like no, it was it made her just disgustingly looking, and then the, the pea soup. Okay. I mean, okay. The, the movie was just really. It was scary. It was yeah, really scary. I know. Um, and everybody said there was darkness on the set, leaving those working on the movie worried that they made a mistake in making the movie. Really? The set of the McNeil's house caught fire during the filming, and it set filming back six weeks because uh, the whole set burned down except for Reagan's room the possessed girl's room everything burnt down except her room oh on my set. goodness yeah two actors in it died before its release jack mcgowan and vesleki mariro Mal- um, oh, i'm so sorry maleros m-a-l-i-a-r-o-s both of their characters that they played in the movie died in the movie as well oh Mar- uh, Mercedes McCambridge she was the voice of the demon in the okay. movie after filming her son killed his wife and children and committed suicide and the suicide note was filled with resentment towards his mother many blamed oh. many blamed the curse of the exorcist movie on this so what was his relationship before the movie I mean yeah you know, I i'd like to look into that too. yeah i know it could just be hearsay you know looking for the dramatics of everything um post-production editing was done at 666 fifth avenue new york city <laughs> uh ellen bernstein who played reagan's mother in the movie uh-huh there was a scene where reagan throws her mom and she's supposed to be in a harness to like help it looked like she's right. being thrown. Mm-hmm. Well, the harness broke and it didn't really work. So the, I don't know if this is necessarily paranormal or if this is just a fun movie fact. It's not really fun. Uh, she fractured her back when oh, she was thrown no. and she screamed because she was in a lot of pain and they kept that scream in the movie. So that scene where Reagan's throwing her mom and then her mom screams. That's real. It's real. Oh, geez. <laughs> That's one of those movie trivias that are so interesting. That just yeah. makes it. Ugh. At another point, the cast and crew arrived on set one morning to find everything covered in snow. What? <laughs> I know. According to reports, the explanation was many air conditioners left running combined with a natural humidity on set allowed for snow to form indoors. Which sounds like does that total crap to me. <laughs> Maybe know. it happens. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, though. I don't. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that's that happens. Okay, so the last one is Poltergeist. I've seen that too. I knew you had. <laughs> Came out in 1982, and I always thought it was directed by Spielberg. It wasn't. He was only a screenwriter on the oh. movie. And I've also always heard that this was the most cursed movie in Hollywood. But 
I don't know. After doing all my research, I think the conjuring was more had more stories to it than this one. So really? I don't want to let I don't want to let you down, but a young family are visited by ghosts in their home. At first, the ghosts appear friendly, moving objects around the house to the amusement of everyone. Then they turn nasty and start to terrorize the family before they kidnap the youngest daughter. Through the TV. <laughs> Do you remember that scene at the end of the movie where they're in a pool and it's like a muddy pool and all these corpses come up? Yes, yes. And it's all these skeletons. So those were real skeletons. What do you mean real? Like they real were people? real skeletons. They weren't plastic. They were real skeletons. Why'd they do that? Spielberg was specific. He wanted real skeletons because they were cheaper back then, I guess. <laughs> we keep hearing this and it cracks me up every time. I don't get it. But that's why they think that this movie is cursed. This movie's been made like three or four times. And Always with real skeletons? No. <laughs> but ever since. That would be horrible. That would be horrible. It's horrible that they were even real. That's just horrible. It is. <sighs> anyway, so this is the poltergeist curse. I believe there were four deaths after the first movie that people have blamed on the curse, including Heather O'Rourke, who died at the age of 12. She played the little girl who's kidnapped as a TV. Oh, yeah. yeah. She died at the age of 12. Now, resources are everywhere with her death that she had like a cardiac arrest. She died of sepsis or and maybe this is even false. I don't know. But she died at 12. They say that she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease and they went in to do a surgery for her and she did die of sepsis. So after the surgery oh. just went badly or wasn't needed or I don't I don't know. Something happened after surgery mm -hmm. and she died. Uh, the next death after the movie released was Dominique Dunn. She played the older sister in the movie. Okay. And this is horrible, but she was actually strangled by her boyfriend following the film's release. And he went to jail for everything. Um, yeah, so she was murdered after the oh release of the gosh. film. And then there was two others, I think, of like stomach cancer and then... Nothing as like horrific as this, but still there was four deaths following the filming. I guess let's see some other kind of creepy things from the movie. There's do you remember the scene where the the clown is choking the little boy? I don't no. remember. I've seen this a long time ago. So there's a clown that's choking this little boy in the movie. Well, the mechanical clown malfunctions during that scene. So he's really choking him? Yeah. And it, the little boy actually started to like really choke. So they had to like did run out there and he didn't kill didn't it. No, no, no. I mean, oh. they didn't keep that, did they? <laughs> I just saw you say, kid. I was like, no, he didn't die. <laughs> no, no, they didn't keep that shot. I don't did think they? so. I would hope not. That would be horrible. Well, they kept the mother screaming in the other one. Yeah, but she's an adult. Can you imagine as a kid, like, you want to see where I almost died? You want to see where my life flashed before my eyes, kids? Let yeah, me replay still, this as for a, you. As a kid, <laughs> okay, let's read shoot that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not getting next to that stupid cloud again. That's, that's so true. <laughs> All right, take three. Heck no. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. So yeah, there was three poltergeist movies. One came out in 82, then 86, then 88. 
in 2000 years apart yeah i know 2015 in a, a reddit post the director of one of the movies gil keenan recalled paranormal activity happening while they were filming quote lights that could turn on anywhere else in the neighborhood would blow out the second you try to light them on the set and they used a lot of aerial drone photography in the film and the drone pilots were never able to lock in the gps signal in the in this field really we would have to move 10 feet away to launch the craft jeez a little electromagnetic stuff going on (laughs) yeah i thought that was just something different a bunch of little ghosty stories here and there are they just all coincidences i don't know but yeah yeah how do you explain some of that stuff Oh, some of it's so, pretty okay. Creepy. I know this is pretty long anyway, but I have to tell you a creepy story. You ready? Okay, I'm ready. And this just happened this week. Oh, I, do I already know this story? Yes. Okay. So I'm tied asleep, and all of a sudden I wake up from a deep sleep. I look over at my phone, which is by my bedside, and the picture. You know, how do you even say that, Beth? The, the when you take the screen on the phone has the picture thing up like you're ready, it's ready to, to, to take a picture, a picture. yeah that, right there yeah it's ready to take a picture is up and even on a on my opening screen where I haven't opened it yet but the thing that the comes lock up screen first, my lock yeah. screen I can't my phone thing doesn't work when I push it you your know, camera yeah the camera doesn't work when I push it so it's like it had to have been open. The only way to open my phone is by knowing the code or to put it to my face. Do you think you went, well, she called me freaking out about this and I've been thinking about it. Do you think you went to bed and accidentally bumped it so that it had been like that all night? No, because I always listen to a book when I go to sleep and I and I had only the book up and then I always shut it down. So maybe when you shut it down though, you accidentally hit the camera thing. So it was just sitting there like that. It would have been black though. It was lit up. Well, then I can't tell you. I don't know, mom. I was just trying to give you. But to add to the scariness, I was like, what the? And then I said, oh, no, I'm not going to look at the clock. I'm not going to look at the clock. I'm not going to look at the clock. And I looked at the clock. It was 3.30, exactly 3.30. I know. My big question was, well, were there any pictures taken? (laughs) That was the first thing I did. It was just like, check okay. your pictures. Well, the next morning, not then. <laughs> I didn't want to find but I checked my pictures and there was nothing there. But how could that have happened? I want to I know, know how that could have happened. Obi, Obi was asleep. He didn't. That's why I don't think it was anything crazy, but. Well, and I didn't feel anything. I yeah. didn't feel any scared. I didn't feel scared. I didn't, you know, it was just like. I felt confused and I'm still confused. (laughs) Yeah. I'm wondering if you just accidentally left it up. Cause I wonder if you leave the, if you leave camera on. That just the phone stays on the whole time. Yeah. I wonder if you have camera on, if it ever goes black or if it just stays on camera. I think it would go black. I know. To save battery. Trial and error. You could. I'll try, but. Try it out. I just plug it in. Turn it on. Leave it on the counter with the, with the camera thing on and see if. It goes by. Yeah. I'll get back to you on that. Okay. (laughs) 
Oh, all of the resources from this episode are going to be on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. If you want to hear us next week, we will be doing a Patreon episode, but we'll be back here the following week. So it's every other week to the public, every week for Patreon. A link to our Patreon is also going to be in the description of this episode. Uh, We do a variety of things on Patreon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A variety. It's it's a toss-up. Yeah. But thank you for listening. If you get on our website, Beth has done a great job. And all you have to do is hit one link and then you're brought to everything that we are on. That link is actually also going to be in the description of this episode. It'll send you to our social media, Patreon, or website, um, any of that good old stuff. If you are watching on YouTube, hi, hello, thank you. Please subscribe, like, follow, all the fun YouTubey things. We appreciate it. I do. Put on makeup for you. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really. I just put on some mascara. I need sleep so bad. I hate sick kids and I can't sleep comfortably. Baby girl will be here in, well, as we're recording this, she'll be here in about seven weeks, not sooner. But as this is released, she'll be here in like four weeks. Yikes. I have so much to do. I'm so beyond overwhelmed, but you know what? It's fine. (laughs) It'll happen. She won't have a room till she's two, probably, once I get everything organized. <laughs> it's fine. She'll just sleep in the little bassinet in our room for the rest of her life. It's fine. Hopefully not the rest of her life. That would be really bad. <laughs> okay, we're going to leave you with that. Just think about that for a while. <laughs> have a great week, guys. Bye. Oh. <laughs> Cheers, Mama. (laughs) Cheers. Love you, kid.